Welcome to the Grace City Tampa podcast. My name is Alex Damari. Me and my wife, Brianna, are the lead pastors. Our vision is to lead people into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that today's podcast will build you up, lift your faith, and encourage you in the journey. Here's the message. I'm excited to share this message with you when... I had asked pastors Alex and Brianna, what, what should I talk about? What do, you, what do you feel like our church needs here in Tampa? And he was sharing with me about lost or found. And I felt also when, when we were texting and we were having this exchange, that one of the things that can be tricky is that sometimes when we're thinking about the lost, we're thinking out there, but sometimes somebody can be lost that's sitting right next to us. Sometimes somebody can be lost that's living in our very own home and we don't even realize it and we don't even comprehend what's really going on. And so the title of my message today is we need you. We need you. We need you fully alert, fully present, fully engaged, fully awake to what God is doing. We need you. And even more importantly, we want you. We need you and we want you a part of this community and a part of what God's doing in and through Grace City at large. We need you. And one of my favorite things uh, when I preach is to integrate some of the psychology. That's what I do when I'm not pastoring is I teach psychology. And I want to share a little bit about some statistics that have to do with what we're facing as a society. You see, right now, we are more connected than at any other point in time in history to one another. And yet, we are statistically more disconnected than at any other point in time in history. So how can we be connected more than ever before and yet disconnected more than ever before? And I really believe a tactic and a scheme is to make us think we're connected. This is done through devices, through the internet, through social media. And what is tragic about that is that they're false connections. So we have a seeming of connection while really feeling truly disconnected from one another. I was actually in Colorado this last week and my husband and I were out to dinner with some friends and I looked over at a table and it was a family of five and every single one of them, this family of five, were on their devices at dinner. Rather than looking at each other in the eyes, they were all on their devices. And this is the reality of the world we're living in. We're connected, but we're disconnected. And when we feel disconnected, the fallout is a feeling of loneliness. The fallout is a feeling of isolation. And I wanna share some of these statistics because it's startling how prevalent it is. You see, right now, one in three Americans are dealing and combating loneliness, one in three. So if you look on either side of you, one out of three, statistically, would be battling that feeling of loneliness and isolation. 47% of Americans say they don't have a meaningful relationship, 47%. Women are more likely than men to feel lonely, and people who are lonely actually attribute mistakes and error to themselves, while people who are in community attribute error and mistakes to the situation and the circumstance. So when we feel lonely, it actually changes the way we interpret situations and it changes the way we filter things that are happening to us and around us. And I wanna talk today about how we are called to behave and engage in community with one another. Because so often people will tell me, well, Christina, I, I don't have time. I don't, I'm busy, I'm working, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I get a busy schedule. However, 
cutting community while normally the first thing that goes is the last thing that should go. When we're in a busy season, we tend to cut meaningful relationships, we cut city group involvement, we cut serving in the church, we cut attending in church. Because, oh, I'm in a busy season. When the very thing that is meant to help us combat loneliness is community. And we'll cut it thinking that it's going to help and in the long term it's actually hurting us. And I find this quote to be so true. We make a living by what we get we make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And I want us to change how we're viewing relationships and not viewing them as, what can I get from this relationship? But asking ourselves, what can I give to this relationship? Shifting our selfish mentality and taking on an unselfish, giving, sacrificial mentality. And I know sometimes these kinds of messages are like, oh gosh, but I find this to be true, that what I need to hear most is often what I wanna hear the least. But this is what we need to hear today. This is what we have to begin living by principles that will help us in the long run rather than just make our schedule light in the meantime. And I wanna tell a story about two incredible women. Their names are Ruth and Naomi. And they have a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. And typically societal standards say that a mother-in-law relationship is supposed to be tense. And this is actually one of the most beautiful mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationships that I've ever seen or heard of. And I actually, I have an incredible relationship with my mother-in-law and I love the example that this sets. It's a story about Ruth and Naomi and Ruth was an Israelite woman. So she was born and raised in Israel. She was Israelite nationality and her mother-in-law, Naomi, was not. And so they're from different cultures, different backgrounds, different upbringings, and Ruth marries into this family. And tragically, after marrying into this family, Naomi's husband dies, the mother-in-law. So the father-in-law dies. And then tragically following that, her husband, so the son-in-law, the husband of the daughter-in-law, he dies. And then this other unnamed daughter-in-law, her husband also dies. So this family is plagued by death at a time and place in history that was under great political unrest. It was a time of social upheaval. There was a famine in the land. It was a time when judges ruled. This was not a time of kings. This was a time of judges. And it was a very difficult time and place in history. And it's important to know that these two women would have been defined in this time in history by who their married to and who they're the daughter of. So everybody's association at this time and place in history was linked to who you're married to. So the fact that their husbands have died left them alone, isolated, combating a level of loneliness I couldn't even begin to understand. They were economically destroyed. Nobody could earn money now at this time, and they had no idea what they were going to do, how they were going to provide for themselves, and how they were going to get through this time. So reading in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11 and 14 through 18, it says, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back each of you to your mother's home. So she's saying, hey, go back to where you came from. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. 
May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons? Who would become your husbands? Verse 14, at this time they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. And God, I pray today that the words that are of me would fall to the floor and the words that are of you, Jesus, would pierce our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Here's the point I want us to grasp today is this idea that we can do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Because the reality is sometimes we see so much need and we're aware of so many things that are requiring our attention. So many people have need of our time and attention that sometimes we can get so overwhelmed by it that we do nothing. We freeze and do nothing. But I wanna challenge our perception to start doing for one what we wish we could do for everyone. One of the realities of human condition is this thing called the bystander effect. It's something I lecture about in Introduction to Psychology every semester, so if you've ever taken Intro to Psych, you know this concept. It's called the bystander effect, which causes us that when we're in a group and we see a need, when we're around other people, we do nothing. Because I'm a bystander, I'm around other people, I assume, Somebody over here, this person over here, they're gonna do something, so I don't need to do anything. However, when I'm alone and I see a need, I act, I react, I engage, I do something. So much to the extent that this was run as a test in New York City, they did this test with child abduction. And they literally pulled up a van and a man jumped out of the van and grabbed a child in the middle of a busy street. There was a restaurant, people were watching, and this child is shouting, help, help, you're not my dad. Leave me alone, help, they're taking me. And people in the restaurant continued to eat. People walking on the street just watched and kept going. People literally allowed this child to be seemingly abducted in a crowded place. And they ran the same experiment in a context where there was only one person watching and when the one person saw this child being abducted, they engaged, they jumped in and helped. And it demonstrates how we sometimes in a crowd will miss the apparent need right in front of us because we assume somebody else is going to do something. Surely somebody else is gonna intervene. Surely someone else is going to do what needs to be done. But I wanna challenge us today with the reminder, we need you. 
We need you to do what needs to be done. We need you to engage. That just because we're in a room filled with people doesn't make your contribution less valuable. We can't live lives as bystanders to the gospel. We have to be fully engaged, fully alert, fully present, participants in what this thing God's called us to live out. And Ruth demonstrates this. She shows us what it looks like to not do as the world does to not go as the world goes, to not live as the world lives. You see, Ruth sacrificed even her own desire for a husband. She, her first husband dies, and she realizes by clinging to my mother-in-law, she was giving up her right to be married to someone again in that time and place. She was leaving her nation, her people, her community, and she realized this woman needs me. So she did what was inconvenient, knowing that it was what Naomi actually needed. When I was learning about what it meant to be a Christian, my grandpa described it like this to me. My grandpa is a pastor and, and dad was a pastor and I come from five generations of pastors and my grandfather loved to explain Christianity and Christian sacrifice, Christian service like this. He said, Christina, we're all called to be candles and we light ourselves on fire and burn so others can see. Now what happens to a candle? It burns and it melts. And he said, every single time we light ourselves on fire for other people to see, we show them the way to go. And he taught me that every single day we have a choice. I have a choice to dim my light. I have a choice to put my light out. I have a choice to conserve my candle wax. I have a choice to not sacrifice for others, or I have a choice to light myself on fire so other people can see, and not only light myself on fire, but surround myself with others who are lit on fire. And guess what happens when you put a bunch of candles together? That fire shines brighter, it burns stronger, and it burns longer than ever before. And that's what we need to do today. Light ourselves on fire, so that we burn so bright, an entire city has to take notice. An entire region has to go, why? An entire area has to say, statistics say this about all of us, but what's happening at Grace City in Tampa that's changing an entire region for the name of Jesus? And it starts by recognizing our need for you. The yes, the lost have to be found. And who of us in this room are living our lives lost, needing in this moment to be found? And there's some things we can learn about Ruth and Naomi and about this story that I think are so important. Three valuable lessons. Number one, Ruth persisted when Naomi opposed. Ruth persisted even when Naomi opposed. In verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Ruth had to persist even when Naomi opposed. 
See, Naomi's pushing these women away, pointing out all the reasons they should go. I mean, and she's kind of a little mean by it, like your dead husband. She's like, you have been kind to me, but you have a dead husband. You need to go find another husband. She's being very direct. She's literally using her words and emotional carnage to push these two women away because she realizes, I don't want to drag them down with me. Naomi knows the context of her situation is so dire and the, and the situation and circumstance she finds herself in is so bad, she doesn't want to drag them down with her. So she keeps saying, go, go. But here's the reality. Sometimes I have to be what my friend needs, not what they want. See, Naomi wanted them to leave, but Ruth knew what Naomi needed and didn't do what Naomi wanted. Sometimes I have to be what my friends need, not what they want. And I think sometimes we give so much respect and so much appreciation for people's boundaries that we don't engage when they most desperately need us to. Now, having been a therapist for years, I appreciate boundaries, I can respect boundaries, but sometimes I need people to bust through my boundaries because I need them in that moment. And I became very aware of this several years ago when we were getting ready for our annual women's conference, Echo, and I got vertigo. How many of you have ever had vertigo in this room? Anybody have vertigo? It's horrible. It's awful. Vertigo causes an incomplete dizziness, like you're circling on a teacup at Disney World, except you're not on a ride. You're just standing or sitting. And you literally are like stumbling around. It's the most bizarre feeling. It was literally, I couldn't, I was vomiting uncontrollably because the world was spinning so out of control. And I found myself in such a horrible, horrific place of need. I had two small babies that were under one year old. And this is the week of our annual women's conference. And I'm going, I can't even see straight. How am I supposed to preach this weekend? How am I supposed to care for my kids? How am I supposed to help my family? How am I supposed to do anything? And I had friends that kept reaching out and saying, Hey, Christina, can I bring you a meal? Do you need some medicine? What can I do? I'm good. It's okay. Blech. You know, I'm like vomiting my brains out. And I am like, oh, it's okay. I don't want to inconvenience anyone. And wouldn't you know, this whole group of girls showed up at my doorstep because they knew that they had to be what I needed, not what I wanted. Wow. You see, it's embarrassing to be in a place of need. It's embarrassing to be vomiting your brains out. And yet these group of women showed up. They started cleaning up the messes that I had made. They started bringing me medication. They helped care for my babies, helped care for my family, made sure I got food, did what I needed of them in that moment. And you know, they did something for me in that moment that I could never repay. And my goal every single day of my life is how can I give my life away to others in such a way that they could never repay me? That I can literally lay down my life for others and sacrifice my life in such a way that nobody could ever repay me. And in that moment, even though I resisted, even though I opposed, my friends knew what I needed and they showed up at a time. They showed up in a way that I needed them to in that moment. Who are we showing up for today that needs us? Not being what they want, but being what they need. Second thing is this. Ruth remained... When Naomi pulled away, Ruth remained when Naomi pulled away. It says, at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back 
with her. See, Orpah does what a normal person would do. Orpah, in this situation, does the normal, ordinary thing. But Ruth does the extraordinary thing. Ruth determines to stay, even though Orpah's going back. And there's something about a power that is found in the ministry of presence. I think sometimes we feel overwhelmed by, I don't know the right thing to say, I don't know the right thing to do, and so we do nothing. Sometimes people just need you to sit with them quietly in the moment just to be there. There is such profound ministry in that presence. In fact, I think there's some of you who you know somebody who's struggling with an addiction or you know somebody who's plagued by depression. You know somebody who's riddled with anxiety and you have hesitated from engaging because you don't know the right thing to say or do. I want to challenge you today. You don't need to say or do anything. You just need to be. Show up on their doorstep, bring them something to eat, and just sit with them in that moment. Sit with them in their despair. Sit with them in their loneliness. Sit with them in their isolation and watch how that brings back their soul to life. There's something so powerful about that ministry of presence. Every significant season that I've ever walked through has been brought about with a friendship that meant more to me than I ever even could have begun to imagine. I find that God always provides divine alignments for his divine assignments. There's always a divine alignment that God brings into place for his assignment. Every significant thing in my life, from a 10-year struggle with infertility, I can tell you about my friend Hannah who walked with me every single step of the way through it. From being a child who was abused growing up in Alaska, was abused in every way imaginable, my friend Liz journeyed with me to a place of freedom and recovery, to seasons of challenge, seasons of depression, seasons of isolation. I could name friends who were were what I needed in that moment, not what I wanted, and that was the key to the breakthrough. Some of you are holding the key to somebody's breakthrough, and rather than engaging with them and unlocking the door of their soul called life, you're staying in a place of isolation and staying in a place of comfortability, and we've got to break out of that boundary and step into what they need, not being what somebody wants, but being what they desperately need. And Ruth demonstrates this by she remained and she persisted even when Naomi resisted. The third thing is Ruth declared when Naomi doubted. Ruth declared when Naomi doubted. In verse 16, Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. She declares, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you from me. And when Naomi realized Ruth was insistent, she stopped urging. But what did Ruth do? She declared truth. And I think so often we've got to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. We've got to declare some truth over our own lives to stir up some confidence, to step into a person's place of need so that we can declare the truth over the lies they have believed about their life, all of their life. We have to declare the truth. And Naomi needs this, but she doesn't even realize she needs it. She says to Ruth four times, Go away. Go back to your family. Go back to where you came from. Go, I don't need you. And yet Ruth clings to her. Ruth remains. Proverbs 18, 24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
Who am I sticking closer to than a brother? Who am I remaining closer to than a sister? See, she didn't let her believe the lie that she was better off alone. And so often that is the tactic and the scheme of the enemy is to get us into a place of isolation. And Ruth declared, no, you need me. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I'm going to die. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Who are we declaring that truth over? Who are we putting ourselves out for? Who are we literally laying down our lives for? That they can't tell their story without your name in it. Naomi Her whole life is changed and impacted by Ruth's declaration. And here's the reality. I would rather be hurt by the truth than comforted by a lie. I would rather somebody tell me the truth than comfort me with a lie. And I'm tired of seeing people wrestle with depression and anxiety and stay stagnant in the place they are. We need you to look to your left or your right and see who needs you in their life. To engage. To be present. To say, hey, are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Are you really okay? Can I take you out to lunch this week? Can I come over to your home and clean your toilet? What can I do for you to help you pull yourself out of this place of a slump? We need you. I'm going to have the team come up, and I want to close with a couple of thoughts. You see, when I teach on isolation and loneliness and I talk about the bystander effect, one of the really interesting things about secular research is the solutions that have been determined for how to combat loneliness. So I'm going to read for you three things that have been determined by research, by psychological science, that are known to combat loneliness. Now, we know these answers from scripture, but wouldn't you know, the research was like shocked by what the Bible says. And this is people who did secular research with real-life test subjects. Here are the things that they found. Number one, join a group. Number one way to combat loneliness, join a group. Number two, share about yourself and listen to another person's story. Knowing community and being known by community. Psychological science, secular research says you need to join a group, you need to share about yourself, and number three, Third, most combative way, volunteer. Serve. What does the Bible say? Pour out your life like a drink offering. We're to lay down our lives for others. Those that refresh others, will they themselves be refreshed? Well, psychological science is catching up with the word of God. So today, if you're combating loneliness, number one, join a group. We've got 29 for you to choose from. 29, join a group. Number two, share about yourself and listen to another person's story. Know your community and be known by your community. Don't just show up and leave. Give your life to others. You don't need anyone. Okay, they need you. We need you. And number three, volunteer, serve, be a part. You see, true community walks in when the rest of the world walks out. Who are we walking into pain for? Who are we walking into depression for? Who are we walking into anxiety for? Who are we showing up for? How are we laying down our lives for others? You see this whole concept, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Ruth couldn't do this for everyone, but she could do it for Naomi. Ruth persisted when Naomi opposed. Ruth remained when Naomi pulled away. Ruth declared when Naomi doubted. Who am I doing for one what I wish I could do for everyone? Four, when 
When I was a kids pastor about 16 years ago in the Seattle area, we had 7 a.m. prayer and a 9 a.m. service. And I remember vividly walking out of one of our service prayer times and I saw this little seven-year-old girl out in the lobby. She was sitting there with a white and blue basketball. She was sitting in the lobby all by herself at seven years old. And I remember the first time I kind of just walked by and was like, okay, that's odd, but all right. Next week, I remember seeing her again. And I was like, what is this little girl doing? And so I walked up and said, hey, where are your mom and your dad? Come to find out her dad had passed away and her mom was a server up in Kirkland, about an hour drive away. And she said, nobody can take care of me. And so my mom drops me off here. So every Sunday at 7 a.m., I saw this little girl. And truth be told, initially, I was the kids pastor. We had a large children's ministry. We were averaging around a thousand children at that time in the weekend. And I had the responsibility of overseeing the entire ministry. And I was like, I gotta run, I gotta go do something. And I was kind of inconvenienced by this little girl. I felt like I need to go do the busy work of the ministry. And there was this little girl, I was like, I don't know what to do with her. And so I just sensed this tug on my heart, like I need to do something with her. So I asked her to join me. And so she began week after week, walking with me, filling up snack, filling up little water cups for our preschool kiddos. And every single week she did that. This went on for four years. No mom checking in with me, no dad, no, nobody present, nobody asking, what is this little girl doing? And I remember we had this ministry called family night where we would, I would have a little kid preach. I would share and then I'd always have a little kid preach at these family nights. And I remember this little girl at 11 years old stood and took her platform and preached such an incredible message. And I watched as her mom sitting on the front row raised her hand for the salvation call and gave her life to Jesus as a result of her daughter's message. Now that challenged me in that moment because I realized I couldn't do that with every single thousand children in the kids ministry, but I could do for one what I wished I could do for everyone. Today, who are we doing for one what we wish we could do for everyone? You see, the end of that story with Ruth and Naomi is pretty incredible. They enter this land, Ruth sticks by Naomi's side. Ruth later eventually ends up meeting and marrying a man named Boaz. They get married, they have a child named Jesse, who's the grandfather of King David. So Ruth and Boaz end up permanently impacting church history, permanently impacting the Bible, permanently. Because wouldn't you know, King David's lineage was actually direct descendant of Jesus himself. What if Ruth had done what was convenient? What if Ruth had done what was normative? What if Ruth had done what was comfortable? It would have changed the trajectory of her life, the trajectory of Naomi's life, and the trajectory of church history as we know it. Who are we laying down our lives for? We need you. We need you. We need you fully alert, fully present, fully awake, fully engaged. We need you. With every head bowed and each eye closed, most important question I will ask is, do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life? If you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, or maybe at one point you said yes to the Lord and you've since walked away, in a moment I'm going to count to three and ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. And the reason I ask you to raise your hand is so today I know who I get to pray for as you are welcomed in heaven. The Bible says all of heaven roars as a new name is added in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so if that's you, you wanna make Jesus the Lord of your life, one, two, 
a bold declaration of faith, surrendering your life to Jesus, your Savior. Number three, boldly and confidently lift your hand. Let me see who I'm praying for today. I see you. I see you. Any others? Praise Jesus. Best decision of your life. Praise God. Second question is this. You want to begin doing for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And you want to set your life on fire and burn so others can see. If that's you, will you stand to your feet? Jesus, you see every person. You know the exact nature of the situation that they find themselves in. And God, I pray right now a courage to rise up in them. To be and to do for the one what they wish they could do for everyone. Jesus, we pray that, God, you would embolden us in our faith. Allow us to persist. Allow us to remain. Allow us to declare so that, God, we can be what people need, not what they want. Come on, church, let's sing this out today. Let's declare God's goodness, God's truth, God's favor. Come on, sing it out. Thank you for listening to the Grace City Tampa podcast. Stay tuned for more weekly messages from our church.